Forgive me for jumping up on the t platform before I was supposed to. I was so eager to preach, I jumped the gun. Uh, folks, I don't think I have ever seen a profession of faith service like that. I will tell people about it wherever I go. But I wonder if you still want to hear a sermon. Yeah. Say no, I'll just quit. Not really. I worked hard at this, and I think it's a message that we all need to hear, so... Here we go. We're reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5. A story you all know well, I suspect. If you have your own Bible with you, turn to it. If you've only got a phone, take that out. This will be the first time I won't accuse you of playing Fortnite or checking your email. 2 Kings 5 is a story about a little girl, a muddy river, a clean general, and a great God. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of his God and wave his hand over this, the spot and cure me of this leprosy. Are not our Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. And Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know 
that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any god but Yahweh. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon and to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow down there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. You think that's the end of the story, but it's not. Uh, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, is greedy. He, he sneaks off to get some of the reward that Elisha turned down. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He comes back. Elisha meets him at the door, his hands full of loot, and, and here's what Elisha said to him. Is this the time? I want you to remember this because this is a major part of the sermon. Is this the time to take money or accept clothes? olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maid servants. Is this the time? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, brothers and sisters, as I read this story, I encounter more interesting characters than I've found in novels by Charles Dickens. If you've ever read those, you know how they're just profuse with interesting characters. We've got Storm and Naaman, the general of the Syrian army. That's Aram is the same as Syria. You've got this little girl kidnapped, now a slave, away from her parents, anybody she knows. You've got the uh, paranoid king of Israel who sees a conspiracy everywhere he looks. You've got the servants, the soldiers of of Naaman who say, sir, um, don't pass this up. Go and wash yourself in the river. You've got greedy Gehazi and the unflappable prophet Elisha. It's a fast-moving, straightforward story about a little girl, a muddy river, and a clean general. Except it's not quite that simple. This old story almost 3,000 years ago now, has a profound, relevant message for today. What is it? Well, I, I could take this story and use it to preach on healing, because at the center of it, there's a healing. In fact, back in my former church, I used this story as the center of a service for prayer on healing. We could talk about that, as a lot of people today would like to hear a sermon on healing in the middle of this pandemic. Or I could preach a sermon based on this story about how God uses little things to do big things. This little girl becomes a prophet to a great man. And God uses this muddy trickle of a river. Have any of you been to Israel and seen the Jordan River? I was so disappointed. This narrow, muddy, little, greasy river 
And yet God uses this little trickle of a river to do a great thing. I could preach to you this morning about how God can use unconventional means to save people. Means like a, an old Roman cross. Or uh, we could talk today about the importance of humility. Naaman almost blows his cure by being so haughty about who he is and, and who his nation is. Why should I go and, and dip myself there when we've got much better rivers back there? And that prophet, he ought to come out to me and, and bow down and wave his arms and say some magic words, make a big deal out of this. I'm too big a man for something like this. I could talk this morning about the importance of humility, how pride goes before the fall, how sometimes grace can keep us from accepting the, how pride can keep us from accepting God's wonderful grace. I could talk about all those things because they're all in the story. They'd all be helpful, maybe comforting, but that's not really what the story is about. I found the clue to the story in that phrase I read at the end of the passage where Elisha catches Gehazi, his hands full of loot, and he says to this greedy man, is this the time to be taking money and clothes and flocks and herds and servants? Is this the time? Something's going on there, something deeper than a few words, something very profound. What time is Elisha talking about? Well, he's talking about a time of severe national decline under wicked kings. That's what he's talking about. First and second kings are all about Israel's long, slow death spiral into ruin and exile because the people are bad and the kings are worse. God sends Elijah and Elisha to try to rescue this nation from its slide into exile. These two books, First and Second Kings, were written on the other side of the disaster, on the other side of the exile. Now, you all know, you've experienced this in life, when a disaster strikes, people want to know, how did this happen? Why are we in this situation? Who's to blame? People ask that question about this pandemic. How on earth did we get here? How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, it's Trump. No, it's the Democrats. It's the Chinese. When a disaster happens, we have questions. Israel, when they lost their lands and their homes and their temple, and they thought their God, we're asking questions like that. Was it God's fault? They were asking that. Where was God when we lost it all? Now, I'm kind of an old guy. I've lived through the reigns of more than 10, maybe a dozen kings in America, from President Truman to President Trump. And I've watched the way the country whiplashes back and forth from one party to the other. 
I hear Democrats blasting President Trump right now. I listen for a while to, to Republicans blasting Democrat Obama. The country is sliding. Both sides say it. The country is sliding into disaster, and it's the other side's fault. It's always the other side's fault. These days, even more so. Political tension and intrigue are everywhere. Our news media pump it into us 24-7, and it affects us, all of us. This fascinating story helps us to answer the questions we ask in the middle of a disaster. How did this happen? How did we get here? Why are we in this mess? And what does God have to do with it? Well, that last question is the key question. That's what this story is about. God in the life of a nation, indeed God in the history of all nations, and God in the life of an individual, especially even individuals who are far away from God. We hear that in the very first words of this reading. This great man, great general, in charge of the very army that has been bedeviling the people of God, a great man who's a pagan. He worships the god Rimmon, which is the Syrian word for Baal, the god that was always competing with Yahweh. And he has leprosy. The only disease in ancient Israel that would keep somebody out of the temple forever. This man was as far from God as he could get. Like Israel in exile. But... Did you catch what the first verse says? Through that unclean pagan, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, gave the victory to Syria. I read that and I said, wait, 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 what? Through that pagan, unclean man, the God of Israel gave victory to Syria. And it gets more interesting after that. Because God raises up the little girl. God has this feckless king of Israel. God has Naaman rumbling up to Elisha's house. And he dips himself finally in the Jordan River. And he becomes, did you catch it? He becomes a convert to Judaism. He says, now I know. That there is no God in all the world except in Israel. You want to talk politically incorrect. You want to talk gospel. That's the gospel in the story. The God of Israel, who's in charge of even the nation that will hurt his own people. And who can cleanse even the foulest sinner. The story begins with God. It ends with God. And God is in every detail in between. 
even when the characters don't know it, and they often don't. It explains that the nation of Israel went into exile in spite of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha for one very simple reason. Disaster hit them because they would not obey God the way Naaman did. God could have delivered them. He had done it before, but he didn't. Because all they could think about was politics and personal success. How can my side win? How can I get ahead? And Elisha says, is this the time to be thinking about that? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this story is against politics or personal success. I mean, it's a political world. You have to think about, care about who has the power. And the Bible talks all the time about finances and, and how to handle them well. Now, this story is not against politics or prosperity. It's a story about trusting and obeying God in the middle of those great concerns. It's about trusting God more than your party or your candidate. It's about prioritizing God over your portfolio. It's about who's in charge and how we can be saved. God is in charge of the destiny of a nation. And he can deliver from any enemy, no matter how desolate things may look. It's not about Trump or Biden or Republican or Democrat or America or Russia or China. It's about the God of Israel, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who became a Jew named Jesus. And that incarnate God can cleanse us. No matter how unclean we've become, like Naaman, no matter how far from God we've wandered, like Israel in exile, the God who used a, a little girl in a muddy river to clean off a Syrian general can certainly use the blood of Christ to wash us whiter than snow. I love the way Revelation chapter 7 summarizes the message of this story. The writer of the book of Revelation is, is looking into heaven and he sees this great multitude, which he says no one can number, from every nation, race, tribe, and language standing around the throne and before the Lamb. They're holding palm branches in their hands and they're all dressed in white robes and they're saying, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And the writer says to one of the elders standing by the throne, Who are these in white robes? And the elder says, These are those who have washed their robes and made them white, not in the muddy Jordan River, but in the blood of the Lamb. 
I love the way the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel in this story in Ephesians chapter 1. He's talking about the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. He says, that power raised him to the right hand of God. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that can be named in this age or in the age to come, our age. And God has placed all things under his feet. So that he rules all things for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways that text reminded me of my favorite story a story I've told many times I probably told it here if, if I did don't stop me let me finish a story about two men walking through an art gallery they're strolling along looking at the pictures and one of them is an international chess grandmaster. As they walk along, the chess master stops before a particular painting, looks at it. He says to his friend, there's something wrong with that painting. He cocks his head, he does it again, he takes his hand, and he, in his mind, he moves a piece, he moves another piece. And then he says to his friend, I know what's wrong with that painting. It's a painting of two figures sitting on either side of a table with a chessboard in the middle. It's very clear that one of the figures is the devil. The other is a man who's obviously distressed and bewildered. The painting is entitled Checkmate. If you've ever played any chess, you know that's the whole goal of the game of chess. To get the other person's king to the point where he can't move anymore. Your pieces have him so surrounded that he can't move without being destroyed. That's checkmate, when the king has been boxed in and can't move anymore. That was the title of the painting. The chess master says, I know what's wrong with that painting. We have to call the artist and either have him change the painting or change the title. Because it says checkmate. But that king has one more move. Jesus hung on the cross. The devils howled. His opponents mocked. He said, it is finished. King had no more moves. And then up from the grave he arose. And up to the throne he arose. And there he sits, the king who always has one more move. This morning you might be like this little girl, humbly serving hard time. Or you may be an important person with all the trappings of wealth and power. You might live by a muddy river or you might have a cottage on Lake Michigan. Whether you're a firm believer or you don't really know God's name, you're in exile, you're as close to God as you could get. 
whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, an American or a Canadian, no matter what your situation, remember the message of this simple story. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Jesus Christ is his son, my Savior, and yours. The King who always has one more move. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for coming down, down and down and down, into death and hell, and then rising up and up and up to the throne at the center of the universe where you rule all things for us, we sinners who have trusted you as our Savior. As we live out our days, O oh Lord, in this difficult time in our country, and then in times that we hope are not as difficult, we pray that you'll help us always to focus on the message of the gospel, there is no God in all the earth except the one in Israel who sent his son to be our savior. Help us, O oh Lord, no matter where we might be living today, to trust the one, the king, who always has one more move in our lives and in the history of this world. King Jesus, do your will. Amen. And now, you're going to sing a bunch of songs. I'm glad that you can. I'm not going to stick around for that. I'm old and I have conditions and I'm going to put my mask back on and go to the back. But I do want to have you receive the blessing of God that's found at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Would you like to stand for that? God said to his suffering church back in the olden days what he says to his suffering church today. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen.